0: Are your school days out of sight when you took English, art, and math. What's your favorite Fahrenheit? How sour are the grapes of wrath? Do you need a challenger for discussing Salinger? Do you love the written word? What happened to the mockingbird? Our show is just beginning, so find a place to sit. These questions will be on the test. It's time for Sophomore Lit.
1: Welcome back to Sophomore Lit, where we reread your 10th grade reading list. I'm your host, John McCoy. And with me is first-time co-host Nathan Alderman. Bro. Hi, Nathan. What's up? Uh, <laughs> Nathan, uh, why don't you introduce yourself and tell people out there where they might have heard you.
0: You may have heard me on various other incomparable podcasts, especially Lions, Towers, and Shields. Um, when I am not talking into a uh, woefully inadequate microphone, I am a writer and editor.
1: And it was, it was you who suggested... Uh, the translation we're using today of um, Beowulf, the, uh, I guess, 11th century old English poem that everybody probably was uh, assigned a, a bit of in in, in high school. Um, you want to talk a little bit about uh, your history with this book and perhaps your history with this specific translation? Sure.
0: I mean... I read it in, I think, probably ninth or 10th grade, same as anyone else. Probably ninth grade, maybe, because um, I'm remembering I wrote my my essay about it on a really terrible old Apple IIe instead of, like, the cool new Mac that I got around 10th grade. Um, yeah, I read the—it wasn't even the Seamus Haney translation. It was too early for that, so I just read the—, the some or other old translation that manages to make a story about a guy who kills a monster and then kills the monster's mom and then gets into a lethal fight with a dragon boring. Um, I remember I was assigned. We were assigned to like write our own versions of it to be like, well, this is a timeless story. And I wrote some terrible, terrible science fiction version of it, because um, that's what you do when you're in ninth grade and a total dork. And then a few years ago, my brother sent me this translation as a surprise birthday gift, and it blew the top of my head off. Maria Devana Headley had previously written a novel called The Mirror Wife, where she took the character of Grendel's mom and made her like a Gulf War veteran and the hero of the novel. And then after that, apparently she was like, well, I've done all this research. I might as well write a translation. And the result is the most rollicking, alliteration, drunk, testosterone fest of an absolute joy to read that you're ever going to find. It is a gift to future generations of board literature students, and I'm very excited to talk
1: about <laughs> it. Well, um, I think I read Beowulf first in some sort of for kids version. It might have even been... Wait, wait. There's by... a Beowulf
0: for kids? <laughs> he rips a guy's <laughs> there arm are, off.
1: There, there are a million Beowulfs for kids. There was this series when I was uh, a kid that, uh, you know, the libraries at that time had a lot of time-life books in series, and I, there was some sort of a series that uh, did classics for children, and they were illustrated classics for children. I, I, I wish I could remember what the series was i can i can picture them
0: in my experience it would be uh Usborne. that was the british publisher that, that did all the like cool gnarly nightmare inducing books about famous monsters with you know gore dripping paintings to really really terrify small children like i think it's it's something in the nature of the british people to want to terrify small children as much as possible um and the boy those books succeeded
1: I read it as a kid and then I I became fascinated with the idea that it was in um in old English uh you know as a, as a teenager I started to read uh Chaucer and and I I I loved that um however old English is 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 a completely different piece than middle English uh I think most people could probably struggle their way through Chaucer I don't think you can really approach uh old English without a, a, a lot of study, so uh, you know, I've, I've I've relied on translation. I, I remember there was a, there was a Tolkien translation. I I, I must have read when I was a kid, um, and and when I read it, I felt like, yeah, that's about right, because that's like where he gets all his, his strange, um, you know, all all the weird ticks in Tolkien. I think come from the fact that he was a, a a scholar of Old English, and he and he and he loved Beowulf.
0: That tracks. Is there an inordinate amount of singing in the Tolkien translation of Beowulf? <laughs> a lot of walking, maybe.
1: I mean, it's all singing. Uh, but it's it, it is very genteel speech, and of course, this this translation by uh, by Hadley is 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 not genteel at all, and 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 that's quite uh, quite quite marvelous. I I agree. It's a, it's a very interesting translation, and we'll probably spend a lot of time talking about this because it's the kind of translation that, uh, opens up lots of conversations about what should the goal of translation be? Um, and, and I'm sure we will both have, have things to say, but I really enjoyed reading this. It's such an
0: interesting transmutation. I mean, it, it captures something about the original work, but it is definitely also just an individual and a very personal statement for the author. And it just got me thinking about what are the limits of translation? Um, Because she is clearly, she's telling the same story, you know, beat for beat, event for event. But she's, the way she's describing it makes it this whole other experience in a lot of really interesting ways. Um, It it just, I I love to read Haruki Murakami novels and those, you know, I I read them only in English because I can't read Japanese. And reading this made me wonder, you know what am I missing from those novels? What am I not getting from them that's being lost or changed in translation after seeing how much this has changed from, you know, the original and from other translations I've read?
1: Right. No, definitely. It's, um, to, to give a, to, you know, to, to jump to the chase, uh, Headley, uh, renders, uh, while while she maintains a line, her, her lexicon is drawing largely from contemporary uh, language, and she is not afraid to not only use slang, but to use slang that is completely anachronistic. You know, she 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 brings in slang from the internet. She brings in um, it, it the you know the, the the she uses the term. Uh, hashtag blessed. She talks about um, what were some of the other things she talks about. She talks.
0: I think my favorite is the the dragon putting the
1: world right, on blast. Right. Exactly. So the, so so it's the sort of thing that it's not just um, using modern language. It's aggressively using phrases that are anachronistic and that she absolutely expects will be uh, dated. In a few years' time um, it's it's very much of the moment, and it I think when people return to this translation in five or ten years, it'll be a different experience
0: yeah there's an absolute fearlessness about it, and that's part of what I find so. Gideon, deliriously fun about it. She's just, I mean, she's given zero Fs here. Um, Her garden of Fs is all depleted. She has run out and um, she's just going for broke. And it's just delightful to see someone take this material that you think of as stodgy and stuffy. And again, it shouldn't be. This is the story of a guy who fights a monster, rips its arm off, kills its mom, and then later dies in the mouth of a dragon, stabbing it in the neck. Um, It should should not be boring it generally is and part of what makes this so fun is the sheer audacity with which she just hurls herself at this poem
1: yeah definitely um b- before we get into too much into hadley uh, a little bit about be- beowulf itself um it uh, it's a it's a funny work for english uh, literature it exists in it, it existed in one medieval manuscript uh, a medieval ma- a manuscript that almost was destroyed in a fire before anyone had a chance to uh, transcribe it um, it didn't really start getting translated into modern english uh, really that much until the nineteenth century and then suddenly in the twentieth century there's been an explosion of translations there's been hundreds of translations of of, of this this poem uh, uh, It is an example of Old English, and Old English poetics are very different than uh, the poetics we're used to. Everything we're... Who was borrowing it from uh, French and Italian sources, and so rhyme, for example, is based upon continental sources. Uh, That was not part of English poetics. English poetics were all about assonance, and they were all about maintaining this strong... Beat. It was not a. It was not a meter, in the sense that the number of feet in each line could keep changing, but each line had these accents, these pulses, and so it, if so, you, if you read it aloud, um, either in old old English or in, in any good translation, you get a sense of, um, I don't know, forward motion is what I would say.
0: It reminds me of Lin-Manuel Miranda's work on Hamilton, that rap battle cadence, the swagger, the, the sheer, you know, drunken delight of of stretching and elongating and twisting language and bouncing it off itself. Um, I have an excerpt here if, if you use now the a good time. So um, this is where Beowulf swaggers into Hrothgar's hall to introduce himself. Yes, I mean, I may have bathed in the blood of beasts, netted five foul ogres at once, smashed my way into a troll den and come out swinging, gone skinny dipping in a sleeping sea and made sashimi out of some sea monsters. Anyone who fucks with the gates, bro, they have to fuck with me. They're asking for it, and I deal them death. Now I want to test my mettle on Grendel. Best him, a match from man into meat. Just us two, hand to hand. Sweet.
1: Hedley, uh, while she does use all these, this new lexicon, I think she's absolutely committed to the, uh, the, the basic bones of, of the Saxon verse. Um, and, and that's what makes it such a, 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 wonderful, strange concoction. I, I, I did want to point out the other thing about the story is, um, uh, while no one really quite knows when the story comes from the, the manuscript people tend to date to about the 11th century, um, it could have existed in some form before this. And the question is, is it a pagan story that's being retold by a Christian or is it a Christian story that is drawing on pagan sources? Nobody really can, can, can agree on that. Um, but it is an English writer writing about Denmark, uh, many centuries before. Uh, even when a Be- big Beowulf is being written, it's in a mystical time in the past, and uh, I it it it's funny in a way that it's written in Denmark because that other great uh, central piece of English literature, Hamlet, is also set in Denmark, and I just feel like Denmark will, like make something that's in Never Never Land, you know, it's, uh, and 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 part of what reading it through this time. It reminded me of is like when you read um, like the original Robert E. Howard Conan uh, in uh, Europe that never existed, uh, the 11th century English version of, uh, of Conan.
0: Yeah, I wonder if Howard ever read Beowulf. I wonder if that was one of his influences because you've got that same swaggering, almost comical machismo there and here. Um, I mean, my my favorite Conan story is Rogues in the House, where there's a gorilla who thinks he's a wizard and Conan kills a guy by hitting him with a chair, um, which would fit right into this story and especially this translation. Um, I I was going to say, yeah, an Englishman writing about Denmark, that'll (laughs) never catch on. But yeah. you mentioned the assonance and the alliteration, and as much as I love the audacious use of modern slang here, the assonance and the alliteration absolutely make me fall in love with this. The way she you know, ruthlessly, ridiculously repeats consonant sounds and noun sounds over and over – Again, she's just, like, daring you to care about it or uh, notice. But it's so much fun, the recklessness with which she pursues that. It really makes this translation sing for me.
1: It does feel strange to a modern ear because I think writers today are discouraged from assonance and alliteration. It's seen as an unfortunate thing when it happens uh, by accident. And... You're supposed to expunge it if it's not if it's not on purpose, which is why it's all the more wonderful to hear when someone like Dylan Thomas does it and 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 just goes to town with it because um, it's it's sort of like you know non-Euclidean geometry. It's like we'll we'll just let, let's throw out our postulates here about what is good poetry and do it completely the other way, and uh, and and that's. Uh, one of the, the the joys of reading this, um, the uh, uh, Gowan and the Green Knight, which I read earlier on the podcast, is also a poem that has uh, this strong alliterative approach. It it, mix, it it mixes alliteration with with rhyme, but it's it's mostly alliterative, and it shows that that tradition um, continued. Um, out outside of the of the of London and in in other parts of of, of the British Isles, um, but you know let's 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 get into the, the story here. I'm getting a little bit too deep into. Uh...
0: Well, I just wanted to add one thing to your discussion of the backstory of the poem. Headley, in her notes, mentions that. Apparently, the original manuscript was transcribed by two different people. You can see two different sets of handwriting in the transcription, and they argue and disagree with each other at times. They cross each other's writing out and replace it with other things. And that all adds to the kind of ambiguity and mystery behind this novel – or, sorry, behind this poem, and I think also kind of liberates it. The more confused the original text is, I think the more permission later authors have to just go wild with it.
1: I I can't help but imagine some poor, you know, scribe writing there at his desk and just like falling over dead and the next guy coming in saying the like, uh, cracking his fingers his his knuckles and saying, "Yep, now it's my turn." Um apparently there's a lot they the original writer tried to uh regularize a lot of names and places and the other guy just went crazy and, and just had like uh, the spelling was all over the place. And people will argue about whether or not that's because they the other guy was working from another source and he thought, well, I'm going to be scholarly about this. So I'm going to just transcribe it as it's written. You know, everything we, you know, all this stuff is just, is, um, even even the best of guesses is a just so story you know it's it's something we tell ourselves to try and make sense of this there's 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 no um there's there's no way of understanding whether or not this one manuscript represents little or much of uh of old english literature but it certainly is central to our literature today so uh, let's take a crack at it. Um. So where where should we start with this? I I, I mean, Hedley's uh stated um, jumping off point was her love of Grendel's mother, and her to look through this um this poem and find where the the women's stories are. Um, and of course it's Grendel's mother who's the most important female character in the in the story. Uh and um but she also brings out other other little things here here and there you know there 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 are other characters here and there for for a, for a book that is very uh male heavy and very built around discussing what the exemplar of masculinity is it's interesting to lo- to read between the lines i guess
0: it's listed as a feminist translation which is really interesting because the book is Obsessed fascinatingly and hilariously with toxic masculinity. It's obsessed with the idea of like chest thumping, broed out, drunk at the bar, you know, telling tall tales and getting into drunken sloppy fist fights, masculinity. I, I like to think of it as Michael Beowulf. Um, and and it, so that actually becomes part of the kind of feminist slant to it because. She, she makes the women conspicuous by their absence, by how little you see them. And any time women do show up, she pauses long enough to fix an eye on them and give them their little spotlight. But she also takes care to present them through the gaze of these totally broed out male characters and to work some irony into her descriptions of them in these guys, you know, how they view women these women clearly have a lot more going on, but they are often described in dismissive or dimini- diminishing ways by the broed out narrator. Um, I mean, literally this, this book translates hoit, you know, which apparently can mean everything from like Hark, listen, I think Seamus Haney uh, translated as so to bro, bro, tell me we know how still, we still know how to speak of Kings. Um, so I, I think that aspect of it is really interesting. The way, women kind of have to struggle to the surface of the narrative, you know, just just surface for a second, you know, claw their way to the spotlight and then get dragged back under in this torrent of masculinity. How, and how even when they are described, even when Headley gives them the spotlight, she adds irony in the way the male characters describe them in, you know, dismissive and diminishing
1: ways. You bring up, um, what's her name? Uh, wheel Thiao. Uh, who is Hrothgar's uh, wife? And as you as you said before, all all it seems like Hrothgar does is sit around and give people gifts and weapons, and they drink and they go to sleep in this this big hall. And then the next day, he gives them more presents. And uh, when uh, Beowulf succeeds in in killing Grendel, uh, Wealthau gives a very interesting speech uh, which as you say is sort of remember uh hrothgar's and i have kids and and they're going to get the throne next right because um she's very concerned that beowulf has the uh the public uh sympathy at this point That beowulf like the, the all all the people in this uh, in in the, in the mead hall are going to say, "Hey, why don't we make Beowulf king?" Uh, and and she's trying to say, "Hey, slow down here, Beowulf. You you know, thanks for thanks for your help and everything, but you're not even a Dane. Uh, you know, we, remember I've got kids here." And that's uh, I feel a lot of what happens with these the the female characters in this story is. They are in a position of having to manage um sort of these these men children you know either either to, to keep their to keep their enthusiasm down to make sure that uh, they they you know I was going to say because you you mentioned this whole thing about gift giving reading this through this time it really impressed upon me what a bleak world this is. Um, the world of Beowulf is a very bleak world because it's a world that has no real social order. There's no there's no laws in place that are going to bring about justice. There's just people who have power and people who have more power. And the idea is that you want, as far as the public good goes, everyone's concerned about amassing the biggest a hoard of wealth to provide for uh to provide for their people, but there is no real order beyond the order of the uh hrothgar's hospitality and bonds based upon mutual gift giving and it's it's very depressing in in a way because at the end of the the play the play at the end of the poem when Beowulf uh, finally succumbs to his wounds from fighting the dragon he says well show me the gold you know show me what what I I died for and I'll know that it was worth it and he gets to see it and he's like okay at least um, my people will have this gold but after Beowulf dies. The word goes around. They're saying uh, around the, the 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 gates, saying, "Okay, guys, now that Beowulf is dead, everyone's going to come down on us. You know, the the the, the people are going to come from the, the north. The Danes are going to come for us. People, everyone knows that Beowulf is dead, and everyone knows that we have this big dragon's horde, and so we're kind of screwed." And that's sort of where it ends. Is is with this sense of foreboding that there is a now a power vac- vacuum in Beowulf's absence, and there is this one marvelous character, the 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 wailing woman, who's who's mourning Beowulf, but moreover she's mourning the fact that she knows that now war is coming, and she knows that now she is going to be a victim of that war she's going to be a spoil in that war she's going to be um raped in that war and that is kind of sobering at the end of this um this this poem
0: yeah it really is the most arresting moment in the book for me most of this book is deliriously laugh-out-loud funny and, and exuberant. And when that happens, again, like you said, she's not really mourning for Beowulf. She's mourning what is going to happen to her and everyone she knows now that Beowulf is gone. And the poem even mentions that the gold is enchanted. It starts to melt as soon as it's taken out of the dragon's hoard. They end up burning it all with Beowulf, so it's useless. It doesn't actually do anyone any good. And after that that stark and amazing bit with the morning woman. And it would be interesting to me if, I mean, I haven't read any, uh, I haven't read the original poem. It's been years since I've read any other translations. But it would be interesting to me if Headley reconfigured that part so that instead of it being, oh, here is a woman. She is mourning for the death of this great hero. She was mourning for what she knew was coming. Because this is a story where men do things and women have things done to them. And the one woman who actually does a thing, namely gets revenge when her son is murdered, is killed maybe for it. it's
1: it's Hadley's translation but honestly when i read this uh, as a younger man i i often felt that this was a strange poem in that it did not exemplify any virtues that i thought were 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 worth uh emulating uh, it's it's strange to me that Tolkien wrote such an ornate uh and courtly Translation of this Beowulf and the Geats and the Danes, none of them are bound by any code of chivalry. They aren't really even bound by any code of wanting to do uh, right in the world. They are, when Beowulf talks about all of his great deeds, they're sort of random deeds where he triumphed over someone. Or,
0: or in one case where he just killed a bunch of people while running away from a defeat.
1: <laughs> yes, it seems like what keeps coming up again and again in this story is the sense that people are trying to amass treasures to themselves because there's no guarantees in life, and the the narrative voice keeps saying, you know, one day we're all going to die, one day Beowulf's going to die, one day Hrothgar's going to die, everyone's going to die and then whatever you you tried to amass for yourself in this life, that's going away too. And it's so nihilistic and there is no sense it seems like everyone uh is trying to achieve some sense of security. Hrothgar wants security for his uh his meat hall by the time Beowulf becomes an old man, he says, you know, I spent 50 years being a moderate king, trying to do the best things for my people, uh, but now I'm getting pulled back into the whole monster-slaying thing. Uh, but but nothing seems permanent, and there is no... And, and the little bits of this uh, poem that are Christian-tinged, like when they talk about Grindel is going to go to hell or something like that. It 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 doesn't really have a lot of resonance. It seems to me like the 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 poet's heart isn't really in that. It's sort of like people come along, they live, they die, they fight, and the question is how long are you going to hang on? And does it really matter because everyone's going to sooner or later everyone's going to succumb.
0: The mentions of God feel very performative in that, like, Facebook post, hashtag blessed kind of way, which is really interesting to me. There seems to be a slyness to that as well. um, Because it doesn't, you're right, it does not, at any way, that this talk of God mesh with the brutal violence of this poem. Um, you, You mentioned that there's not a lot of morality to emulate. And here, Beowulf is pretty moral. I mean, he has a chance to seize the throne at several points, usually at the expense of like a child, and chooses not to. He chooses to be loyal rather than ambitious, um, which I think is kind of admirable about him. Um, But yeah, even that in the end doesn't get him anything. There's a real sense of history being told by the winners here, especially in the descriptions of Hrothgar. The... Poem and the narrator fall all over themselves to describe how great Hrothgar is, how noble he is, what a generous and cool and awesome dude he is, but he he's not he's old i mean he he may have been great once, but now he's just this old helpless man who just watches bad things happen over and over and then begs some buff young guy to to solve it all for him. Um and it's interesting that, that the there's a consciousness on the narrator's part that he has to suck up to Hrothgar, even though Hrothgar at this point is long dead. Um which I thought was pretty interesting and, and deliberate.
1: Yeah, Hrothgar is not a great guy. You know, he after Beowulf kills Grendel, uh there's there's a lot of uh feasting and a lot of gift giving of rings or of Weapons, but when Grindel's mom shows up and and kills someone, <laughs> Rothgar's like, "Well, what have you done for me lately, uh, Beowulf?" You know, he's like, "Now everything's everything's gone to hell again." And Beowulf gets mercenary. Beowulf
0: gets mercenary. He's like, "Oh, okay, you want me to kill two monsters? Well, that's the that's the upcharge. That's the premium package. For that, you're going to have to pay out." <laughs> what I wonder is. After the first time a cannibalistic monster storms into your meat hall in the middle of the night and eats people, why are people still sleeping there night after night after night? Why and why only the hall? Why Hrothgar's like he's got a bedchamber somewhere farther back. Why doesn't Grendel go there and eat him?
1: This is what I was saying before about there being no social order. This is this is a city state circa. Eight hundred in 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 Denmark. It it th- there's not a fortified city per se. What there is is this fortified hall. Um, what's its name? Uh, Heorot. That's the civil order. Uh, the city state is the civil order otherwise what you gonna do you're gonna go go sleep on your own
0: seems like it'd be safer at this point
1: Uh, it might be but you're on the other hand you're out there on on your own um and there's not much to that's that i guess that's the thing about grendel is he what what makes him such a threat is the fortifications don't do anything. He he seeps in through the cracks, and he and he steals people away. It's it's sort of the the fly in the ointment, you know. It's like the Hrothgar thinks he's got a, a great thing going, but here comes Grendel, and it seems like nothing is going to um, is going to stop that. And I in in that way, Grendel is a symbol of all those things that go wrong. Uh, to defeat our plans, you know, our, we have all these plans about being safer and more secure and there's always something that's going to foil that.
0: In a sense, it's it's kind of like Jane Austen.
1: Yeah. How so?
0: It's a little like Jane Austen in that the biggest threat is the person in the social order who's not supposed to be there, who is transgressing their station.
1: Hmm. I was going to say it reminded me a bit of Don DeLillo, uh, "White Noise." In the, the in that uh, novel, DeLillo says that the more we um, are able to protect ourselves from death, the 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 more terrible death becomes, uh, and 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 I feel like that's the, that's the case here in 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 Harrowat is that everyone feels like they should be safe but they aren't beowulf is ultimately um as mortal as anyone else and and i think it's interesting reading it through this time to me uh headley makes it clear that a lot of points in this story everything's touch and go you know when beowulf uh especially when Beowulf goes into Grindel's mother's den, which is this strange place below a marsh. It's not really clear what that means. He he seems to sink below the marsh into this hall, but the question is, is that hall all filled with water? Is this all, you know, it it, it feels strange to me. It feels like he's gone into another world, and in this world he finds that his The sword he's brought with him has no power it 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 shatters it it it, it melts it, it it's, it's no good he He is saved by just dumb chance that he finds another sword, an enchanted sword that he can kill Grendel's mother with uh and the the poem makes clear how much how contingent uh, victory is at, at every moment.
0: It's really interesting the way it undercuts. The, the poem has built him up and made him this invincible superhero. At one point, it even refers to him as a superhero, and uh, you know builds him up and as this tough, brawny warrior. And then, for that, for a very brief moment, but a telling moment, when he's fighting Grendel's mom, he is scared, panicked, flailing, and losing. And they note that. And then they go back to, as soon as he gets that lucky break of finding a giant magic sword, then suddenly he's the awesome invincible hero again. But I think the poem again and, and Headley want you to see, no, this isn't some invincible super God. This is just a dude who got lucky.
1: And at the end, when he is fighting the, the dragon whom Headley also makes uh, female in this, in this story, which is an interesting choice. Um, He's basically screwed. He's he has not he's not thought this through. He's brought the wrong tools.
0: He's brought the wrong team.
1: They're basically going to let him die on his own as he fights this dragon. One guy comes in, and we this glossed. guy, yeah, he has the advantage of having a shield that he can hold over uh, over Beowulf, and he's also spears the dragon through his stu- his. Uh, stomach, so the dragon can no longer breathe fire, and that provides the opening for Beowulf to be able to to kill the dragon. But, but it's it, again, everything is contingent. And and when and when Beowulf dies, and and Wiglaf talks to the other guys, he he dresses them all down. Like, why did you come out here? Beowulf gave you all those gifts. Once again, gift giving. Um, is not necessarily the best loyalty uh, producer, I guess. It ends on this moment of: Is Wiglaf going to be enough to to take uh, Beowulf's place, or are they basically going to be run over by their 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 former friends? You know, like the even the Danes are 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 seen as likely uh, invaders now that Beowulf is dead.
0: Yeah, there's a really – you mentioned um, – I was thinking about, you know, Wiglaf and, and Beowulf and, and loyalty. Beowulf is loyal because, you know, he was adopted by the old king, um, Hygelac's uh, dad, when he was a kid. And so he grew up with familial bonds. So he has – it wasn't just gifts given to him that made him loyal. It was being basically this guy's son and, and growing up with Hygelac almost as a brother – But whenever they say father in this book, they don't say father. They say daddy, um, which is both like a performatively macho, who's your daddy kind of reference. But also, I think it's like deliberately juvenile. It's meant to say, these aren't really men. These are still overgrown boys. And in their minds... Daddy is is the all-powerful godlike force. And that, again, is is a really interesting use of language for me. She's really – I mean, this whole book is just taking the piss out of masculinity in the sense that it is practiced in this poem um, over and over again in really interesting ways. Using that, that hyper-masculine bro, chest-thumping, fist-fight, let's-get-drunk-and-tell-stories – Uh, milieu, to really critique that and make fun of it in in such a giddy and gleeful way, and yet also kind of a sad one.
1: For me, Headley makes manifest something that I always suspected was there, which was that this is um, such an existential and, in some ways, nihilistic poem. It, It really... Beowulf is the exemplar of a of a hero because he has because he wins because he is effective and and when he stops being effective he stops being a hero and what the poem uh demonstrates is the problems with basing your security on um On on this need for heroes, there is no, there is no law that's spoken of here. There is no social order. There is, there there doesn't even seem to be a convincing economy. The economy economy. is when you
0: find treasure that a dragon hoarded. That's it.
1: (laughs) Everything is seen as cyclical. That you people heroes will rise, heroes will fall, ultimately. They have very little to do with the course of the world. I think the very ending lines, where the, which are supposed to be about praising Beowulf's um, Beowulf's deeds, but because, as you said, that the, we we've had this voice of machismo and and bro speak, it it ends on this moment of. Um, Rationalization almost in the way where they say, like, he was our man, but every man dies. Here he is now. Here our best boy lies. He rode hard. He stayed thirsty. He was the man. He was the man. You know, that's not going to mean much uh, tomorrow when the next tribe over is going to come breaking down the the gates' doors because we no longer have a war chief. I I think
0: it's just, it's. Demonstrating, you mentioned nihilism. It's demonstrating the emptiness of that kind of worldview, of that view of masculinity that of you know masculinity being here's who's the strongest and the toughest and can kill the most things, and that just leads to this empty, barren, depressing world. With like you said, that that empty, self-rationalizing show at the end. Their king is dead. These guys are screwed. None of them can stop what's coming, but they're going to put on like a horse parade. And, and they're going to be like, he was the man, he was the man, which reminds me a little of the Big Lebowski, you know, sometimes there's a man and, well, sometimes there's a man. And, and that's just as deliberately empty a statement about masculinity as closes the book here. Yeah, I, I think she's just trying to say this is the natural endpoint of a, when you build your world around this. You're going to end up dead, having built nothing, accomplished nothing, just, you know – you will have some stories that people will tell about you but stories don't last, you know i guess they last but they don't stop they don't save people from anything they don't stop anything that's coming
1: it's a good point you make there about having built nothing having accomplished nothing all the wealth that's out there exists in the form of these hordes that pass from dragon to person to monster to other person there's no, it's, it's this huge zero sum game where there's only so many jewels, only so many rings out there. And <laughs> maybe if, uh, if, if Frothgar would get some of his people together to make some more rings, maybe there would be, uh, an economy. Or maybe
0: just like knowledge. Knowledge is not important in this world. Learning, base cunning, and, and strength are important. I mean, Beowulf doesn't have a better plan to beat Grendel. He just has more brute strength. He is strong enough to rip the monster's arm off. That's his plan. I am uh, Swords don't work on this guy, so I'll just rip his arm off. He doesn't have a plan to kill Grendel's mom, except kill Grendel's mom.
1: <laughs> now, see, this is again why this recalls Robert E. Howard to me is that Howard was, um, as a lot of the the old weird tales people were, they were interested in telling stories of uh, of exemplary manhood, and in Howard's vision, what made Conan this. A hero was that he was untainted by civilization; that he existed, and, and that he certainly was not um, given to deceit. He, the way that sorcerers were, the sorcerers are all deceitful. He was, he was a plain person who was outside of society. I always found that really depressing. You know, I, I grew up as a kid reading Conan comics, and then when I Switched over to reading the 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 stories. I found them so incredibly grim. That's why I guess ultimately of the whole Swords and Sorcery era, I I I I kind of liked um, Elric more because Elric seemed to me to be such a deconstruction of that whole idea that that you know it was here was a character who was absolutely. Outside of any kind of ethics, he, he was not concerned with ethics. He was concerned with his own, uh, his own interests and the interests of the people he cared about. I feel that way about this. Is that I I I really enjoyed reading this, but ultimately I didn't, I couldn't join in with those people mourning Beowulf. I didn't really see that much had been lost at that point. I felt like. Okay, here we go. Yeah, my, again. my
0: heart was with the morning woman. After that, after knowing what was coming, all the empty pomp and pageantry just feels dumb and hollow. Just more guys beating their chests and trying to feel better about themselves when they can't. They have. They can't protect anyone from what's coming.
1: When we started this, we were talking about Headley and her translation, and I mentioned that this is a translation that challenges our ideas of what translation should be and there are plenty of uh attempts to take ancient texts or not just ancient texts but old texts and put them into something resembling modern language it feels like uh, it feels like almost a scandal to me when i read this through that she puts in these um, the, the This lexicon that's derived from modern technology and modern social conventions that that really mark it as being outside. It's not just that she's decided to use a contemporary word in place of an old word. It's that she's using a term that's com- completely contemporary. Uh, ultimately, I, I, I enjoy it a lot but it does leave me wondering as i as i finish this how um you know i i am curious to think was this here all along was this was this um the nihilism that i see there was the implicit criticism of the of 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 what the life of the hero made possible was that there all along, or is this something that Headley brought out in her in her translation? Um, ultimately, I'm not going to know because I'm I, at my age. I am definitely not going to learn uh, to read Anglo-Saxon. But um, what do you, I mean? What do you think?
0: I think that the reason she used the modern language, and you could have easily like tried to do this with just modern language, and it wouldn't have worked. But what makes this work is the reason she uses it. This was very much, and she says so in her introduction, a reaction to the times when she was writing it, to, you know, to the chest-thumping bravado she was seeing. I mean, think of a Brett Kavanaugh at his, uh, his you know, confirmation hearing for the Supreme Court. This man, incredibly accused of rape, successfully defending himself by basically screaming, I like beer. Um, that's what she was seeing when she was writing this, and that is that point of view is why she uses the modern language. She wants to root this in this period. So I think over time, yeah, the slang's going to age poorly, but it's still going to be a reflection of where we were at this moment. I don't think that irony, I don't think that nihilism was in the original poem, because even if it was reflecting on a bygone world, that world still wasn't that different from the world in which it was being written down. But Headley talks about seeing, you know, powerful men screw up over and over and over again and try to justify it with bravado while she was writing this book. And I think what she's accomplished here is a kind of wonderful inversion of that. Um, it is an, a, a good example, a positive example, a creative example of the kind of thing that she was seeing and that to some degree, sadly, we are still seeing now, which is if you fail to have shame and you just keep going, you can get away with anything. And in this case she fails to have shame about the alliteration, the assonance, the modern slang. She just brazen's through it with all the fearless unearned confidence of a Beowulf and because of that she succeeds wildly even when she should have failed.
1: That's that's that that almost sounds like an ending to me, but do you have anything else you want to say?
0: I would just say I beg everyone listening to this to go and read this translation. It is unbelievably fun. It is an absolute blast. You will laugh out loud, which you would never think you would do at Beowulf.
1: Thanks again to my co-host, Nathan Alderman. His podcast is I Want My MCU TV. Sophomore Lit is brought to you by The Incomparable Network. Find more funny, smart podcasts online at theincomparable.com. You can write the show at sophomore.literature at gmail.com, or you can join the discussion on either the mm-hmm. Sophomore Lit Facebook page or the Incomparable Membership Slack.
0: Hello, hello, can you hear me?
1: Um. Oh, I see. I see what's going on. Sorry, hello, yes, can you hear me okay, yeah, okay what what happened is I have hearing aids and they are Bluetooth and oh no some, some sometimes the computer decides that it wants to go to my hearing aids rather than my uh headphones oh,
0: I'm terribly sorry S- um. And- isn't Bluetooth also Danish and, like, the logo is based on an ancient Danish rune?
1: <laughs> it is. It is. It's based upon this guy who was supposed to have blue teeth. I, I forget what his story was, whether he just <laughs> ate blueberries a lot or...
0: I, I guess your your um, hearing aids were like, our ears are burning. Someone's talking about Danes. <laughs>